Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. And this is part two of our Adam Grant episode this week. This is a little bonus extra content for you. And if you have not listened to part one of this episode, please go back and do so. That dropped on Monday. Today, we're going to break down networking in this environment. How do we network effectively online? As well as what Adam Grant has to say about his fantastic book, Give and Take, in the last seven years since that book was published. So we're going to hop right to it. First, tell you a little bit about The Art of Charm. We are a podcast dedicated to upping your social skills, a show where we bring you actionable tips and strategies to supercharge your social skills and turn that boring small talk into smart talk. Surround yourself with an army of high-status individuals to grow your social capital and to unlock your hidden charisma to crush it in business, love, and life. And if you're enjoying this show, subscribe and tell your friends about it. Now, if you're looking to make your quarantine more productive, check out our Core Confidence Group Mentoring Program. You get access to our network with daily live videos from the team, as well as each week you'll meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific with your virtual group coaches, and you get weekly challenges that push you outside of your comfort zone, grow your confidence, and deepen your connections with friends, family, and coworkers. And every mission is coronavirus quarantine friendly, so you don't even have to leave your house. We cover topics like dealing with negative emotions, defining your values, living in the present moment, identifying your limiting beliefs, and achieving crystal clear goals. Join a group of supportive and like-minded Art of Charm listeners to bond and grow during this crisis. You can expand your network and connect virtually to reach your true potential. Our next group kicks off April 26th at 9 a.m. Pacific. We are accepting applications now as seats are very limited. To learn more and apply today, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash core. That's theartofcharm.com slash C-O-R-E. Now let's get started with part two of our Adam Grant episode. Adam is a psychologist and author specializing in organizational psychology. And he's the author of one of our favorite books of all time, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. We're going to be discussing that book and what's changed since it was published today. Adam is a professor at the Wharton School of Business at UPenn, where he also has received his tenure at the age of 28. He's the host of Work Life Podcasts, and this is his third time on our show. Now, With this uncertainty, especially with a lack of job security that we're all facing, some of our listeners have already lost jobs and are concerned about finding new jobs in this environment, and and some of us are being furloughed and and told not to come into work. What can we do with this opportunity to attempt to further and advance our career and grow our network? Obviously, we're not used to a situation where we're this isolated, and we can't just go to those events and rub shoulders and make connections with people. Let's see. When I think about this, I always think of Adam Rifkin. Adam's uh, one of the stars in my first book, Give and Take. Mm-hmm. And Adam is, is one of the most generous givers I know. He's also a remarkably good networker. He was named Fortune's Best Networker some years ago when he had more connections to powerful people than anyone on LinkedIn, including the CEO himself, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when I asked Adam how he met these people, he said, well, it's really simple. I've just spent my whole career and most of my life doing five-minute favors. I thought this was such a simple and actionable idea that you, know, you don't have to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi to do something for someone else. 
that you can just microloan your time, your energy, your skills, or your connections to other people for a few minutes a day. And I think that's one of the most powerful ways to build relationships. So, you know, Adam's advice is you do a few five-minute favors every day. And over time, you feel more connected. You're able to add more value to other people's lives. And you end up building new relationships in the process. Uh, Many of those people then will go on to pay it forward because they feel a sense of gratitude. And they want to try to model the, the way of being in the world that you've just introduced to them or maybe reinforced for them. And I think the I might just edit a little bit and say, my read of some of the evidence is we might be better off instead of doing you know a few five-minute favors every day, picking one day a week as our five-minute favor day or as our generosity day. There are experiments uh, with people doing random acts of kindness by Sonia Lubomirsky and her colleagues, and then people helping each other randomly in the workplace by Ryan Duffy and his colleagues, where they essentially show the same thing, that people who do one random act of kindness or one act of helping a day, it has no effect whatsoever on their mood or their energy. It might help other people, but it's useless for you. (laughs) And in contrast, when people pick Thursday and say, I'm going to stack up all five of those acts of generosity in one day, they get a, a significant and sustainable increase in their energy and happiness. And that, that seems to be because they're able to feel like they made a difference that day, as opposed to it being a drop in the bucket. It may also be because you know they're more focused and that's less of a distraction in that giving day. But I think that that's something we could all do to continue deepening and broadening our networks. I love that because for me, Thursdays, I'm dragging already. So <laughs> I could use that little, that little burst of energy. Generosity no, I'm so day. glad. Tried at your own risk. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to talk about Give and Take. It's seriously one of Johnny and my favorite books of all time. We recommend it to all of our bootcamp participants. And really, it's changed the way that I view giving. I used to consider myself a matcher and definitely felt that I was always sort of guarding my time and, and constantly calculating how much I got out of what I was getting and of course can become unnerving. And then to see that science behind, you know what, just the five minute favor, doing it consistently as a habit and giving without having to trace and track everyone's return on that giving that you're doing. I found that my anxiety waned tremendously and and I certainly felt like I was making a greater impact than trying to keep score. But many of us are struggling in, in breaking out of that matcher mindset, especially when we see those takers around us having their careers advanced and, and moving faster than we are. Yeah. Uh, this is the story of so many people's lives. Well, AJ, I'm, I'm honored that it's it's been relevant to your life. I'm glad it, it sounds like it hasn't totally ruined it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it has not. I can, I can add that as a testimonial. It's not ruined my life. Good. That's encouraging. That's my primary goal. First, do no harm. <laughs> I think that there are lots of ways that people end up getting ahead when they're selfish. My read of the evidence is that happens, especially in workplaces where individual performance metrics dominate. And the way that you succeed is by being better than everyone else. Personally, I prefer not to work in an organization that operates that way, right? Right. And if you join a culture where people's contributions to others are valued as much as their individual achievements then you see really quickly that takers tend to fall and givers rise very quickly. One of the things I wish I had covered in in Give and Take was a meta-analysis, a giant study of studies with over 50,000 employees across industries. And the finding is that 
how much time you spend helping other people and trying to, to contribute to the organization above and beyond your individual job description, that has as much impact on your performance reviews and your promotion rate as how well you do your actual tasks themselves. And so what that says to me is actually in most workplaces, leaders and managers don't just want the individual superstar. They want the person who makes the team better, who goes above and beyond for the organization to try to advance the mission. And I think the, the real problem is there are a lot of takers who are good fakers and who end up you know, kind of kissing up and kicking down. When that happens, I think you have a, a few choices. And I'm not going to say you shouldn't be a matcher when dealing with takers, right? If somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, you probably do want to be much more, I would say, you basically want to follow the law of reciprocity and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to help you if you pay it back or pay it forward. But I think there are actually ways to reform takers, which might be fun to talk about. I'm curious, as, yeah. as you guys have dealt with selfish people, how have you thought about getting them to, to maybe think about being more generous? When we're doing it in class, and inevitably, there's always a few people who are afraid of being taken advantage of. Oh, if I'm a giver, then I'm going to get taken advantage of. And that usually stems from in the past where they felt they had been taken advantage of. And for me, yeah. if, you, if you ask that question then there are two things going on. A, you have not learned how to build boundaries. So those boundaries, they're murky. And so you do get taken advantage of because you're unable to say no because you don't know yeah. when to say no. And number two is the value that you hold for yourself. And what I had seen, and, and I love your book so much, is that without cultivating a feeling of value for yourself, then of course you're going to feel as if everyone's there to take from you because you haven't built up the value that you would want to protect with boundaries. And that takes time. And I've, we've put together in our classes ways of building that value for yourself, which is acting in a manner that is consistent with the values that you hold for yourself. And every day that you're able to do that, the value that you have for yourself builds and you continue to fill that in while you're being consistent and engaging in those values. And two, do you get to a point where you now hold that value for yourself and you certainly wouldn't want to have, be, have that taken advantage of. So now you're comfortable in building those boundaries because you've seen the work that you've put in to get to that position. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, the way to reform takers happens through norms and the group has to participate in the norm for the taker to stand out for the wrong reasons. The reason you're seeing takers get ahead is because no norms have been set. So they've been allowed to set the norm or set the frame for behavior. So for example, if you have a taker in your midst who's constantly taking credit and just blasting to management how much they've added to the project. And everyone else in the, the project feels like, well, wait a second, I had a contribution. What's going on here? The way to reframe that is to allow the taker to have credit, but then talk about how them taking that action benefited everyone else on the team and made them more productive. And when you set that norm enough with multiple examples where you're never just only spotlighting the person who had the credit, you're spotlighting all of the impact that that credit had, so it's spread around the team, then you are working to create a norm where the taker isn't setting the frame and the taker isn't taking advantage of the fact that everyone else is just being a little humble and unwilling to speak up. 
And I find time and time again, especially early on in our career, we're not comfortable setting norms. We're not comfortable with setting those boundaries. So the takers quickly advance. And then as you get to the upper levels of your career, you realize that that flips and the takers can't actually demonstrate their value in a meaningful way. It just looks like they're stealing credit. So the best leaders are the ones who know how to give others credit. They're not the ones who are just blasting from the rooftops their credit. But a lot of times early in our career, we see the taker and we let them set the frame and we back off. And that's really the worst thing you can do because it's just allowing the taker to continue to take advantage of people and highlight themselves first. That really resonates. I think it's something that we we often catch when it's too late and the norms have already been set to be much more competitive or cutthroat. And that's gotten me wondering, well, what, what can we do to, to hit the reset button? And probably the, the best example I've seen of this is in a financial services company a few years back, this woman named Kathy got a big promotion. And she was told that she was going to co-lead a new team with a guy named Colin. And four different people came up to Kathy and said, do not trust this guy, Colin. He's going to stab you in the back. He's going to steal credit for your ideas. Huge taker. Watch out. And Kathy has this opportunity when she sits down with him to figure out, okay, what is our working relationship going to be like? And what kind of culture are we going to build in our team? And she does something that I think very few of us have had the courage to do, but probably a lot more of us could do. She says, hey, Colin, you know, I understand we're going to be leading this new team together. Just wanted to let you know, this is what I've heard about you. And she shares all the reputational feedback. Colin's response is priceless. I don't know who you've been talking to, but clearly all these people are jealous of me. Thank you, Colin, for confirming your taker status. Yep. Right. But Kathy, Kathy's right on point. She's like, you know, Colin, honestly, I don't know you. We haven't worked together before. You know, I, I hope it's not true, though, because I don't work well with people who operate that way. And if that's who you are, you are not going to like working with me. And for the next year and a half, Colin changes his stripes. He shares credit. He volunteers for unpopular projects. He mentors junior people. And I think what Kathy did was she made his reputation visible to him. And then she invited him to earn a new one. And this, to me, is one of the most powerful things about working with takers. If you can figure out what their goals are, then their behavior is actually pretty predictable. And all you need to do is help them recognize that, you know, the power or success or wealth that they're trying to accumulate that might be jeopardized by being and being known as selfish. And so there's a better path. Now, you know, the sad part of the story is Colin changed teams a year and a half later, and he went right back to his old taker ways when Kathy wasn't holding him accountable anymore. But I think an example like that tracks with, with some of the evidence I've read that takers do not, in most cases, want to be outed as takers. And if you can let them know that their reputation is, you know, is steering in a more selfish direction, that's often the beginning of an incentive for them to try to change. Yeah. When their behavior isn't seen in a negative light by anyone openly, then they're going to continue acting that way because it tends to be rewarded. You know, we've had takers in our midst as a company. And one of the first things we did was start meetings off expressing gratitude for other people on the team. When you rob the taker of its, their stage to crow about their own advancements and, and take up all of the credit for the rest of the team, and instead you focus communication on how has someone else helped you? How has someone else guided you? How did someone else kill it in their job? You take away that bully pulpit that a lot of takers use to their advantage. Unfortunately, what we find in our clients is 
they're not only givers, but they tend to be really humble. And what ends up happening is they don't have good ways to communicate their value to management. Mm. And unfortunately, management has way too many concerns to think clearly about all the different pieces that everyone is contributing to the team. And unless you are constantly presenting the value that you add, a lot of times, in especially in a bigger environment, you are going to get passed over for promotion when you are deserving of it. Because the fact that you're constantly doing the five-minute favors for others, not looking at all to take any of the credit, and in fact, downplaying when you are given compliments and, and saying, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal or it was no split off my back, that leads you to a position when it comes for performance review where management doesn't see you as being the person that builds the team up, does all the behind the scenes stuff that makes givers so fantastic. What is your advice for those of us in our career who are giving but can't really explain or demonstrate our value when it matters or counts? Well, I think you have a few options. The first one is to recognize the value of having some matchers looking out for you. So I found over and over again when I study people's motivations and values across industries and across cultures too, that very few people on the far extreme of giving or taking, most people by default, especially in a new professional interaction, they, they prefer this matching style of, you know, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And what's great about matchers then is they really believe in fairness and justice. It bothers them at their core if they see a taker getting away with selfish behavior. And they're also really upset if givers are going unrewarded for their generosity. And, you know, for a while, I thought that we basically wanted only givers in, you know, in a workplace. Because then if everyone's generous, we can build a culture with, with the most effective norms of helping and where people really put the team in the mission first, as opposed to just their individual self-interest. But I've had to rethink that because... If you have no matchers in the system, it's much easier for takers to kind of sneak in and take advantage of the givers. I think you may want to build a protective shield of of matchers around you. That would be my my first tip. Yeah, so building allies. And I think a lot of us, especially early on in our career, are looking for mentors. So we tend to look at people who are above us in the organizational structure we're like, okay, I want to be mentored by this person. I look up to this person. And we don't spend enough time building allies with our team members. And certainly identifying matchers and building alliances with them, if you tend to fall on the giver side of the spectrum, it sounds like they're the ones who are going to be able to call the balls and strikes. And when that performance review comes around, actually give the truth to management when they're looking at who needs to move ahead and, and who maybe is taking too much of the credit. That tracks for me. And I think one thing that requires of a lot of givers is to stop judging matchers. I've had this reaction myself, and I know I'm not alone. When, you know, when somebody, I actually, I had this happen with a colleague of mine where I asked him for some feedback on a project I was working on. And he came back to me a couple days later with exceptionally thorough and helpful feedback. And then said, here's the project I've been working on. You owe me feedback in three days. (laughs) <laughs> I was so offended by that because I all of a sudden I felt like he didn't care about me. This was just a transaction. And, you know, now I, I had to repay my debt. It kind of undermined the relationship. I, I've changed my stance on that over time. I realized, you know what? The fact that this guy holds other people accountable for doing their share is exactly what givers need. 
And so, you know, instead of this having this knee-jerk reaction of, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you so transactional? You know, it should be no strings attached. To be able to say, you know what, there's a time and a place for, for people to keep score. Maybe you don't want to be that person in every interaction or in most of your relationships. But, you know, knowing that there's, there's value in having those people around you, to me, that was a little bit eye-opening. Yeah, I certainly agree that having matchers around you and involved in your career is a fantastic way if you skew towards a giver who is humble and can't really speak up your own value for them to help advocate on your behalf. Yeah, and that I guess that goes to the other the other point which is you don't have to just think about it as advocating for yourself. I've taught negotiations for years and the evidence is overwhelming that for women, oftentimes there's a backlash when they're assertive in negotiations and they're well aware of this. And so the, res- the natural response is often to be modest and humble and caring and communal and ask for less. And of course, that puts them at a huge disadvantage. And what the, the evidence says here is that if women are negotiating on behalf of others, if it's a colleague or a direct report or a mentee, uh, that, that gender backlash and gap vanishes. And I think this applies to people who are givers, who are men too. You know, one of the things I've taught to, you know, to some of the more, especially the, the more agreeable givers that I've, I've had in class is to say, you know what, if you find yourself walking in to negotiate a salary or a promotion, or even just to, to make sure that your boss is aware of your work and you shy away from, from asking or even just claiming the credit that's owed to you, then you need to think about who else you're representing. It may be that you're role modeling for people more junior who struggle with this. And it's an opportunity to go and try it out and report back to them so that they can learn from your example. It may be in a negotiation context that you're showing your boss, you know what? I negotiate as part of my job and I'm going to try to approach this negotiation, not only with generosity and concern for you, but also with high aspirations for my own goals, which is the way I'm going to represent you when I'm negotiating on your behalf as part of the company. I think that very often when, when people are extremely humble, they're thinking too narrowly about the credit or the ask as something selfish, when in fact, it may benefit other people or it may be something that actually in the future clearly benefits their employer. Once again, when it comes to a place where you're constantly in fear of being taken advantage of, you're always going to see that in other people, no matter what they're doing. And you're going to read things in that manner. Why I was mentioning earlier of it's so important to build your self-worth and reverse that. So you're looking for the, the good in everyone, but also at the same time, learning how people give value just because maybe you've gave a contact out, then you're looking for a contact that comes back. Well, perhaps the, a gift or a dinner or some time or like those, that reward, that value comes back in many different ways. Yeah. We were talking about this like love language. Exactly. And unfortunately, many of us in our communication style we expect to receive and return what we're giving to others. So as a giver, you could see yourself getting frustrated or feeling taken advantage of if you're looking at it as, well, I gave this person my time and now they're not giving me their time back immediately. Or I gave this person a referral and they're not giving me back a referral. 
But just because you gave someone that value doesn't mean that they're going to, in turn, give you that value back exactly the same way. A lot of people give value to others in different ways. And a five-minute favor for one person might actually be you know, an hour favor if they're not skilled or competent at what you're asking them to do. So I think you know, we put so much expectation on others. And I was talking to two of our uh, clients recently uh, at the end of the boot camp, we have dinner and they were both consultants, different fields and actually different locations. One was based in the UK and one was based in New York. And they noticed this dynamic at work that if they went into the start of the project and told the client essentially, hey, in working with you, I want to do everything I can to get you promoted. So they set the frame at the start that I'm working to advocate for you, even though you work at a different company, and I'm going to make sure that your boss knows how well you worked with me, and I'm going to help advance your career. Well, lo and behold, they found out that at the end of their projects, they were getting high marks because they were interacting with matchers. So they were setting the norm at the very beginning, saying, I'm going to advocate on your behalf. And since most of us fall in the matcher category, sure enough, you're going to find enough people in their matching and you're going to go, well, wait a second. If this person's giving me value by advocating for me, well, then I got to in turn do the same. I should be advocating for them. And they were able to advance in their career where that part of the performance review is so huge that the client speaks highly of you over delivering and the client is advocating on your behalf, not just your peers and your allies. And I think when you start to look at, okay, understanding your own behaviors, reading other people's behaviors, and ultimately starting to understand a little bit more of their core motivations, you can, as a giver, without having to be braggadocious, without having to be outside of your character, be a humble person and still get ahead. Yeah, I think this really speaks to a myth that I've seen over and over again on my research on on givers and takers, which is I think a lot of people see giving and, and taking as opposite ends of one spectrum. Mm-hmm. And they are at a, a fundamental level. When you go into an interaction, you know, asking what can you do for me is sort of the opposite of asking what can I do for you. But when you think about the motivations behind the two, they're actually independent. So there's a question of how much do you care about helping the other person you're interacting with? And then how much do you care about achieving your own goals? And when you measure those two separately, they're basically uncorrelated. So you can draw two by two. And, you know, the pure takers are high in concern for themselves and low in concern for others. And then you have some people who are are low in concern for themselves and others. I've never known what to do with that. They're just, I guess, apathetic. They just, they don't care. (laughs) I guess that's depression. You have two kinds of givers. You have, you know, with both categories of givers, you have high concern for others. But some of them are, are low in concern for self, and those are the really selfless givers who end up being too humble, too nice, too self-sacrificing, and, and ultimately are more likely to burn out and get burned and underperform. And then on the flip side, you have the successful givers who say, look, you know, I'm not trying to be a matcher, right? I don't want something back from each, each person that I help. What I want to do is I want, I want to help as many people as I can, but be mindful of the personal cost of that and make sure that I don't overextend myself. And so I'll, you know, I'll help whenever it benefits other people a lot and, you know, make sure it doesn't cost me too much. And I think that that, for a lot of people that I've, I've had a chance to work with, that's been a useful reframe to say, look, you know, giving to others doesn't mean you're not ambitious. It doesn't mean you don't engage in self-care as well. 
And in fact, if you know, if you don't prioritize your own goals and, and objectives along with other people's, at some point your risk of burnout goes up and you end up in a weaker position to be able to support other people. Yeah, that sense of self-worth is is an important part of that equation. Huge. So we asked you to to read the future. Let's hop in the time machine. Obviously, the book came out seven years ago. What would you change, revise, edit now with the science that you've seen in the last seven years? Oh, there's so much. This is, <laughs> this is one of the curses of writing a book. Is <laughs> You turn it in one day, but it's never done. Big things I would change. I think one thing I would change is I would write much more about shaping cultures and the importance of the culture of a team in, in both influencing people's style of giving and taking, but also then how you can actually change a culture if you're in a more taker culture into more of a matching or giving culture. I think I would spend a lot more time on the work-life dynamics and work-family dynamics. I wrote a lot about the, you know, the conditions under which generosity can build career success I didn't spend nearly enough time talking about what the, the spillover effects are at home. And a lot of the people who, who read the book and, and some of the, the critical reviewers said, well, you know, it's, it's really great to be a giver professionally and your family suffers because of it. There's actually an example of a, a giver in the book who told me that his wife hated him for eight years because he was at the office helping other people instead of her. Yeah, And that's that's a real problem. I think there are trade-offs when it comes to time. I've also found, though, in, in some research with a colleague, Sabina Sonnentag, that on the days when we're more helpful to others and we feel like we've made a difference, we actually come home with more energy. We feel more competent, a greater sense of mastery, and that leads to positive emotions, which our families can benefit from. And so I don't think it's as clear cut as saying, well, you know, the time you spend helping others on the job will inherently make your life at home worse. I think there are positive spillovers and negative spillovers, but I would love to have spent more time on those. Well, I think for a lot of us, our spouse, significant other in our life could see when our giving gets in our way and, and is a detriment to our health and our happiness and well-being quick, more quickly than ourselves. And I've had that conversation numerous times with Amy where she's recognized that my giving has come to the detriment of my own mental well-being and my own physical well-being. Mm. And when you're wired to give in that way and you feel that energy burst, well, that high does wear off. And sometimes it takes a toll that you don't see as readily as the person you live with, the person you're in a relationship with. Yeah, it, I remember years ago, my wife asking me, why are you helping that person? You only hear from them when they want something. And I was like, because it's a five minute favor. It costs me nothing. You know, they, they seem to be very appreciative. It's like, yeah, but you're, you're not only rewarding a taker, you're reinforcing their behavior and teaching them the lesson that they can get away with it. And I feel like that is a message I have needed to hear over and over again. So that's something that I think uh, only comes from experience and having the mirror held up where you're somebody is pointing that out. So it's in nature that you're not going to be able to see its problem or its detriment to you. Somebody has to point that out. That's certainly difficult. And then to go along with that of just gaining experience so you can then after that to recognize it so that you don't get caught up into it again. 
Yeah, it's and, it would be so nice if we could see ourselves clearly, but given all the blind spots we have, we we become heavily dependent on on feedback from the people who know us well and care about us. You brought up a, a point about culture, and we talked about this on a, a previous episode of the show. How important it is to identify the culture that you're joining when you're looking for a job, and and many of us now are going to be going through a career transition, or we already are impacted by this current situation and, and looking at new jobs. What are the questions or strategies we can use to identify if a culture is a taking culture, or rewarding takers or givers, or how can we identify what is the best fit for us? Uh, we hear so much about culture, but many of us just look at, okay, what's the compensation package? What's my commute? What are the perks and benefits? We don't often think about the culture or have solid strategies to identify those red flags with the culture. Yeah. This is a question I've been getting asked for years, especially from students, but sometimes people at mid-career doing transitions and pivots. And I think the, the most useful thing I've learned is when you ask people to describe the culture of their organization, you run into two problems. Maybe there are more, but two, two that, are, that are obvious. <laughs> One is that people sugarcoat a lot and they end up telling you what they think you want to hear about the culture, so you're motivated to join. And then the other problem is that they just describe the culture in these platitudes or in, you know, in really abstract terms where you don't have a sense of, of what the organization is all about. People will say, you know, we value teamwork and excellence and integrity. Like, great. I could have Googled those words and come up with about half the companies on the Fortune 500. <laughs> Meaningless. So what I think works much better is stories. We reveal the culture of an organization through the stories that we tell. And the kinds of stories that I like to get are the stories about, can you tell me about something that happened in your organization that would not happen anywhere else? And what that does is it, it draws people's attention to what's really unique about the place they work. And then you collect a bunch of those stories and you try to figure out what are the common themes. This was actually first done a few decades ago by Joanne Martin and her colleagues, where they analyzed the, the organizational stories in a bunch of different industries that were, were told about cultures. And they found that there were a core set that came up over and over again. So one of the common stories was about whether the little person can get to the top. Another was about whether the big boss is human. A third is, am I going to get fired? And when you look at these stories, you start to realize, you know what, the particulars of each organization are often idiosyncratic, but the fundamental questions people have about culture are, you know, they're somewhat universal when it comes to what humans want in a place. And I think when you collect enough of these stories, you can start to hone in on, okay, what are, what are the common themes I'm hearing? Is this the kind of place where I can, I can both express my values and grow and contribute in a meaningful way? I've been sending students out to do this for years, and one of the more interesting things that happens is very often when they ask this question, people are stumped, and they, have to, they really have to think hard about it. And in a couple of cases, I've had the recruiter come up afterward. This was um, the first time it happened was in an info, se uh, excuse me, info session. I had a student, Nicole, who went and, and raised her hand in the Q&A and said, can you tell me a story about something that really makes your culture unique or you know, something that, that happens in your world that you've really never seen in any other company? And there were, I think, three recruiters there, and they kind of looked at each other saying, yeah, we, we got to think about this. And one of them came up afterward and said, hey, your, your question really stood out. And so I think this is you know, not only a way to learn, it might be a way to make an impression as long as everybody doesn't start doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So we got about a two month window. Based <laughs> there you on go. Podcast downloads here. Good that luck. Will be at an advantage. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our last question here, thank you for taking the time. You did some interesting research on whether introverts or extroverts are better leaders, and we're dying to know what's the final verdict. All right, you ready for this? The answer is yes. Awesome. Really helpful, right? No, (laughs) what what I found... (laughs) Everyone's happy. It, You've made everyone's day. Yeah, exactly. We didn't lose any listeners. So I, I, yeah, I no. knew it. I knew it. <laughs> that is actually, I think everyone will be happy because the, the, the pattern, this is work I did with Francesca Gino and Dave Hoffman. Uh, what we found both in, uh, in a study in the, um, in the food industry and then also in uh, controlled experiments was that introverts and extroverts were equally effective leaders overall. But they were successful with different groups of employees. Mm. If employees were, were more on the reactive side, where they were waiting for direction from above, the extroverts led more profitable companies and more productive teams because they, you know, they really went out and energized their people. Whereas the introverts maybe were a little bit more reserved. But in proactive teams, when employees were taking initiative, they were bringing ideas and suggestions from below, Introverts were were more effective. Their companies were more pro- uh, profitable, and their teams were more productive. And that was where, with proactive teams, extroverts were sometimes more likely to steal the spotlight and kind of hog the center of attention. And that had two negative effects. One was that they got fewer and worse ideas. The other was that they left their people feeling a little bit discouraged and demotivated. Whereas the introverts asked questions, they listened, they ran with the ideas, and that that helped to both motivate and bring better ideas to implement. And I took that and said, all right, the simple lesson here is that there's not a set of personality traits that, you know, that define a great leader. You know, every set of personality traits comes with strengths and weaknesses, and we all need to be a little bit more flexible and adaptable. And then in in a follow-up study, I found something similar with salespeople 
where extroverts and introverts were about equally effective in a phone sales job. And there was one group that outperformed both of them. That was ambiverts, people in the middle of the spectrum, <laughs> precisely because they seemed to be more adaptable. The introverts were, you know, sometimes too timid. The extroverts, the risk for them was being overbearing and talking too much. Mm-hmm. And the ambiverts kind of took the best of both worlds. And interestingly, when I've gone back to the, the data that we published on introverted and extroverted leaders, it does look like it's the ambiverts who bring in the best results there as well. So I think, you know, we shouldn't be slaves to our personalities. We all have natural tendencies that are partially influenced by, by genetics and brain chemistry. But we also have choices about the behaviors we engage in. And I think we could all learn to unleash our inner ambiverts. So now our audience is wondering, what's the best test to figure out if you are uh, an ambivert? What, what's the test we can ace here? Oh, you know, I, I don't actually think it needs a test. I put together a little quiz uh, with the TED team a couple of years ago when I, I did a podcast episode on your hidden personality. Uh, so we, we put together a short quiz around that where you can figure out if you tend to be more introverted, extroverted, or ambiverted. But I think there are, there are actually two flavors of ambiverts. One is people who just are kind of in the middle of, of each of the different sub-traits. So, you know, you're, you're sort of moderately assertive. You're moderately energetic, moderately outgoing. And then there's another category of ambiverts who are high on one, one set of sub-traits and, and low on another. Uh, so you might be extremely gregarious, but not at all adventurous. And you could come across as ambiverted that way too. So I don't know what to do with that, but I always find it interesting. So Adam, I have a then I have one to add to that. So the for the person who can go be extroverted for three days, just gregarious, out there, loud, not just full on extroverted, and then just shuts down and has to go away and read for a couple of days. Who is that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Johnny. A good question, Johnny, that's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, so what are you? We're still trying to figure that out. 14 years running. I've always considered myself an ambivert because it's a mix of both worlds. But once one shuts down and I'm in that phase of the other, it's I'm very fixed. But then when I'm out on the other one, I'm very fixed. And so that's why people will think that I'm an extroverted person because they've seen that character like – I also live in two worlds. There's part of me who loves to read, loves psychology, loves philosophy, which AJ gets to deal with at work. But then there's the the rock and roll performer that plays in bands in Hollywood and has been doing that for 20 years. So like, and and both of those characters are, are very set and they don't mix. And each of those characters has their own, (laughs) own set of friends. And there's a great divide between those two worlds. That's fascinating. I think you should introduce the two of them and see how they get along. No, they would I, kill each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the one who rides the, the equator in this scenario, and, and I'm playing peacemaker between the two sides. <laughs> you know, Johnny. Honestly, I'm 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 never sure what to make of you know of individual cases, uh, and I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I yeah. can't help you that way. But. I will say, I, you know, I can think of a couple ways to at least speculate about what might be behind that, that kind of unusual combination. One is you may be an ambivert and you, know, you might have different roles that naturally bring out each. I think that's especially likely if you're a high self-monitor. 
self-monitoring is one of my favorite meta traits. It's, it's about whether you tend to adapt your behavior to situational cues or you're basically the same person in every context. And high self-monitors are much more likely to have this chameleon quality where when they're on stage, they come out of their shell. And, and when they're not, they figure out what's appropriate for that situation and they, they read quietly. Wow. Uh, a sec- I, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's you. I'll pause there, but yeah. I have two other hypotheses. Okay. That sounds like Johnny to me. <laughs> so you may just find yourself adapting a lot. Yeah. Um, what was the other ones? Well, so the, the other two hypotheses, the second one is, you know, even extroverts have their limits. And it, it may be the case, extroverts can handle more stimulation than, than introverts typically, but you may just reach your limit at some point and then need to recharge. And then the, I think the third possibility is, one of the ways I like to break down introversion, extroversion is sociability versus uh, excitement seeking. Ooh. And if you cross those two, sometimes people score high on one and low on the other. And you can find there are shy extroverts out there who love skydiving and they're kind of adrenaline junkies. They probably drink a lot of coffee as well, but they're very uncomfortable in new social situations. And the flip of that, which you could be, is more of a sociable introvert, uh, where physiologically, you know, you're not the person who craves stimulation constantly, but you love people. And that's when your performing side comes out. Wow, there's a lot to think about there. <laughs> Those are my guesses. Good luck. <laughs> I feel like when we have you back, we're going to have Johnny Lynn on the couch and just do a deeper dive. I refer you to Esther Perel or Lori Gottlieb for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for yes. joining us, Adam. My pleasure. Obviously, this was fun. Great work as always. We really enjoyed it. What are you working on currently? Is there a new project in the works that we should get excited about? Oh, right now, just uh, just deep in the throes of, of my work-life podcast, we're about halfway through the season, and we've got a bunch of episodes to wrap up before the season ends. What are you most excited to release on this season? Oh, I've had a blast with procrastination and negotiation. Uh, negotiation was especially fun because I went to Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's <laughs> to try to negotiate uh, free Cinnabon and then free cinnamon pretzels. And it was a fun challenge. <laughs> and then coming up down the pipeline... I'm really looking forward to an episode on uh, career peaks and valleys and the question of how do we stay great as our careers advance and some of our knowledge becomes obsolete. Yeah, um, that's awesome. It could be. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. Yes. Thank you both. Wonderful. It was so fun to check in with Adam about his thoughts in writing that book seven years ago and what has changed. Obviously, that book has been a big influence on our lives and our clients here at The Art of Charm. And it's so cool to hear an updated version of Give and Take from Adam. Well, not only that, and working with these concepts over how many years of The Art of Charm, some ideas... And some questions have certainly come up on our side of the block. And it was such a wonderful opportunity to be able to discuss them with the man himself. And what I love about it is not only identifying yourself as a giver, taker, or matcher, but understanding how to build alliances with people who may have a different temperament than you to gain that advantage in the workplace. What a fun episode. I'm so happy Adam stopped by. Now, here is our challenge for you this week. What are you doing with LinkedIn? As we heard from Adam, networking has never been easier. Right now, 
everyone is online checking their social media. So how about we start expanding our network? This week, we challenge you to go into LinkedIn and update that profile. Change your headshot, get everything up to date, and start growing your network while we're all stuck indoors. Now let us know. We're always excited to hear from you. So send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also email us, questions at theartofcharm.com, and you can find us on social media at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Now, if you're feeling frisky and you want more Johnny in your life, tune in to our live coffees at 8.30 a.m. Pacific each and every weekday on our social platforms. You can find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you go on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast? It would really mean the world to us. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denham at Cast Media Studios in sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. Have a great weekend. 